This is Model Minority Report, a podcast about dismantling Asian American stereotypes one episode at a time. We examine pop culture, nerd culture, and everything in between to explain why representation matters. Ultimately, why we matter. Hey there, we are back with episode three. Thanks for waiting. I know that I have yet to create a normal-ish consistent schedule for the podcast and I don't know. I don't know if I will ever be the kind of person who can launch a podcast at the same time every day on the same time at the same day. Um, So I don't know. Bear with me as I figure this out. I haven't even fully landed on whether the podcast can be weekly or bi-weekly. I think weekly is super ambitious at this point. So for now, let's say bi-weekly is more realistic. Um, But here I am with an episode. So let's just leave it at that and be happy that we're all here. I'm happy you're here. Um, This is an episode that I have been wanting to do um, because I think that it's important to kind of have a historical overview of the history of both yellowface and whitewashing in movie and TV roles, just because I think we seem to focus on a lot of the recent cases. But I don't think a lot of people or most people um, know exactly kind of the trajectory that it has taken from the history of movies and media, you know, altogether. And I think it might be fun to kind of explore you know, where things have been, where they are now, and whether or not we've made any progress whatsoever. I don't know. You be the judge. Um, Okay, so without any further ado, here we go. Let's go all the way back and travel back to the days of silent film, um, which would be, this is 1915 we're starting at, and we have the film Modern modern Madam Butterfly and um, so again it was a silent film that was a story that depicted I don't an Asian I I don't even it's so old I I don't know if I can't remember if in my notes that I was takes place in Asia or supposed to be again I don't know a ton about it but what I do know is that Mary Pickford was the actress selected to play Cho Cho San Um, an Asian character who was in love with a white dude. And so, (laughs) and I say this, and I laugh because I have to laugh, um, is that this is kind of the, one of the origins or original stories that um, fed the stereotype of the the Asian woman, you know, pining for white dudes, um, and which is a, a thing, and I think even in um, some of the criticisms of "To All the Boys I Loved Before," um, people have called that out as as a trope of, you know, the Asian woman and and white man kind of relationship. And so, um, the thing that sucks here, and you know, and think what you want about "To Boy To All the Boys I Loved Before," I loved that movie, um, and didn't get that vibe. Like I, I felt she was really just an Asian girl a hormonal teenager just like a lot of us who happen to be Asian and fell for a white dude because there probably weren't a lot of other Asian kids around. I don't know. It, it you know, could it have been two Asian kids falling in love? Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Um but as we know now, lots of people love Noah Centennial and 
you know, I, I don't have a ton of complaints about it. I, I get where the sentiment comes from, and it's it's from things like Madam Butterfly. And here's the part where Madam Butterfly gets really annoying. Um, Mary Pickford, it was rumored that she had some tension with the director in filming this movie because the director, Sidney Olford, thought that she was too brash and forward to play an accurate Japanese woman. So here we go. We have, like, obvious, ridiculous bias fueling a biased film. (laughs) The director believing wholeheartedly that all Japanese women, all Asian women probably for that matter, are supposed to be these demure, submissive characters who all they do is pine and desire nothing but the love of a man um, who of course must be white um and so again like historically this is where we started out unfortunately in terms of the portrayal of asians in film and asian characters and ugh, it's just gross um fast forward a little bit to like the 20s and 30s we now have sound in films and i think the first film that ever had first feature-length film to have sound was, I think, The Jazz Singer. doesn't have anything to do with Asians, but that comes out. (laughs) And then shortly thereafter, um, we have these films, basically a series, these Charlie Chan films. And so Charlie Chan was a character who, he was an Asian character who was a, like, detective, worked for the police, um, so on the plus side, he was a super smart guy, usually the smartest guy in the room, um, but also was super desexualized and kind of had these weird little fortune cookie sayings. And so his character played on, you know, still while seemingly positive in terms of his portrayal, um, still had some really problematic issues where, like, Okay, we can have a lead Asian who's smart and talented, good at his job, but can't for some reason have a love interest or, you know, and so again, here's kind of where the birth of those portrayals and stereotypes come from, where Asian men are not considered um, masculine or desirable. And so obviously, if you've seen Crazy Rich Asians and seen men like Henry Golding or seen men like John Cho, you know that this is not true, that Asian men are super sexy. Um, I married one. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's dumb. And again, this is probably an early case where it happened and it continues to happen and there are many cases to come. Um, but some other points about that, um, these Charlie Chan films, one of the actors, there were several of them and, you know, and several actors played Charlie Chan, I think, but, um, Notably, Warner Oland, white dude playing Charlie Chan, taped his eyes um, in order to appear more Asian. Um, and so it just goes to show the stupid and ugly kind of lengths that white actors went to in order to appear Asian. Um, one of the other things that's kind of disappointing about these films is that... Um, it was said that Asian actors were actually cast in these roles in the beginning... And because the films didn't do really well or do as well as expected, they just decided to um, to cast white actors. So, again, it goes back to that whole idea of this business case of, like, well, we have to put white actors or famous actors. Um, you like that voice? <laughs> I don't know. That's my, like, white um, 
producer, director, executive voice. <laughs> we have to put white people in the movie or we won't sell tickets. So for whatever reason, right, it happened one time. And so for some reason, everybody gets this idea that Asian actors are not, won't sell tickets. Um, so fast forward to now, you have, we obviously know that's not true. Um, but this, you know, case made that whole idea kind of pervasive in Hollywood. And so that stuck around for quite a while. And so moving into 1930s, this is 1932 now, we've got a movie, Mask of Fu Manchu, um, which, okay, if you Google this, maybe I'll, I'll post it on Instagram, but actor Boris Karloff was the one who played the main dude in this film, supposed to be an Asian guy, and you know, with a Fu Manchu, of course. Um, but instead of just taping his eyes, they fully, like, used prosthetics and weird makeup and... Uh, to make him look like not just an Asian person, but like not quite human, kind of weird. It's like literally the Asian dude as a monster. Um, and so he really appears like this evil kind of creature that has Asian-esque features. Um, and then it's just really gross and infuriating that that was kind of the idea or that was the perception of, of Asians, right, or, or this kind of character, and that's the way that somebody thought it was a good idea to portray it like that. So, um, a few years later, another notable film, we had The Good Earth, uh, Louise Rayner, white woman, played the main female character, Olan, um, and this is a film that was supposed to be, I forget what the film was about, anyway, Chinese farmers or something. Anyway, Louise Rayner goes on to win the Academy Award for Best Actress for this role. Um, her kids, ironically, are played by actual Asian kids, <laughs> meaning that at this point in time, now Asians are good for set pieces and decoration and for um, appearing to have some kind of uh, accuracy, <laughs> right, or to, to color up the place, if you will. And, and that's kind of how Asian actors were used at this point. Also, we should probably note that kind of historically things going on in the United States um, just after this um, don't go too well for Asian the Asian community in the 1940s. Um, if you know your history, we know this is post-World uh, War II. President Roosevelt decides to um, intern or put Japanese people, families, these are men, women, and children, into concentration camps essentially, and 110, 120,000 um, living in the United States, right? These are Asian Americans um, who are put into camps. And so this is obviously kind of a stain on our history, but as you can see, kind of fueled a lot of the sentiment and a lot of the racial divide and maybe some, you know, in the discrimination and kind of hatred for for Asians in America at this time, right? And so, as we know, things like this don't just go away, and oftentimes this is where these generations, you know, hold certain types of grudges or hold these biases, and it sits with them for years to come. And so it's a sad point in history, and it's a sad state for the Asian American community at this point, and so it's just, you know, at this point, it's not an excuse, but it's no wonder, right, that you see some of these biases and these 
um, hateful kind of approaches to representing Asians in, in film and TV. So we've got, yeah, just after this, in the midst of all of this, 1944, Dragon Seed comes out. And then we've got some, like, big famous actors. Catherine Hepburn um, notably plays Jade, who's supposed to be a Chinese woman um, who is resisting, you know, her village, um, resisting takeover, you know, uh, fighting the Japanese who want to take over her village. Um, And again, we have some more Asians here who are kind of sprinkled in to make it seem historically accurate (laughs) decorate the set with some Asian looking people. Um, but again, Catherine Hepburn, as you know, is not Asian, um, and, and played this role as, as Jade. So 19 moving forward, 1950s and sixties, again, is a notable point in history. As you know, this is the civil rights movement. And in the height of that movies, um, are still commonly, you know, conducting blackface um, in, in movies at this point. And shortly thereafter, and so, you know, Asians obviously are still not in any good place in terms of how they're being represented. Um, in the midst of all this, 1956, The Conqueror comes out, a movie about Genghis Khan, and that is played by none other than John Wayne. And apparently... This is, you know, goes down in infamy as one of maybe one of the worst films ever. Um, so, you know, kind of debunking the myth that just because you've got a famous actor who, you know, who you think might sell those tickets in place of, of somebody maybe of color or Asian, it's not always a guaranteed success. <laughs> this was um, a terrible, awful movie that did not do well at all. Um, same year, 1956, The King and I comes out, um, and Yul Brenner, the Swiss guy, plays King Monkut. Um, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. <laughs> and goes on to win a Tony for the Broadway, uh, portrayal of this, as well as an Academy Award for his role, um, as an Asian dude. <laughs> so, you know, again, we've got people taking opportunities for, you know, Asian actors who are out there and struggling to get work. We have, you know, producers and directors and creators hiring, you know, and um, certain people because they think they'll sell and then, you know, ignoring um, being historically accurate by any stretch of the imagination. And so then coming into the 60s, 1961, we have Breakfast at Tiffany's where Mickey Rooney famously also like disfigured his face in such a weird way. Um, not only taped his eyeballs, but I think even like had these crazy buck teeth and just weird things going on with his face. Like it was supposed to be funny, but it was really just stupid and annoying. And even then, I think people were you know, at this point, kind of seeing how ridiculous it was and calling it out and complaining a little bit about, about it. And so I think even since in that, at that time, even the directors and producers, um, at some point have come out and made public apologies. Mickey Rooney, I don't think made any kind of 
sincere or worthy statement about it, only that he regretted doing it. <laughs> and so, yeah, obviously, if you do something and there's a shit ton of backlash, you're going to regret it. Um, so he wasn't sorry for actually doing what he did. He was sorry that it, you know, <laughs> that he got backlash for it. You know, like, so there's backhanded ways to apologize for some of these things in a way that, you know, doesn't acknowledge their own bias or their own bad choice, but, you know, more focuses on the reaction and, and tries to kind of undercut it that way. So anyway, this same year, 1961, we've got West Side Story comes out and you got some classic whitewashing. Um, and so this is just a side note. I know this isn't an Asian American, uh, but the lead Maria in West Side Story is supposed to be Puerto Rican, but it's played by a white actress, Natalie Wood. So, and then moving into, you know, these recent, these years, this this decade, 1960s, 1968, we have the height of the Black Power Movement, the Black Panther Party um, is becoming prominent. And side note, and fun fact, one of the founding members of the Black Panther Party was actually a Japanese-American, Richard Aoki, and he was notably, I think he was a professor, um, but one of the early members and actually was responsible for helping obtain weapons or, you know, uh, for, for members of the Black Panther. So, um, and I think it's notable here as part of the history lesson to talk about how right after kind of on the heels of the Black Power Movement, there was indeed a yellow power movement where, um, Asian, uh, you know, leaders were coming out of the community who were inspired by, uh, the Black Power Movement and wanting to reclaim their own identities and want to define their community and their identities. Um, and so 1968 is actually when the term Asian American officially became a thing. Like before that, nobody I think was really talking about it in that way. And at that point, it was very much divided between, you know, you've got Chinese communities, these people are Japanese, these people are Korean, these people are Vietnamese, these people are Filipino. So there wasn't a ton of unity, per se, among among the Asian community at this point in the States. And Asian American was coined as a, as a very, in, like, intentional political statement to unite those forces, to say we want to be acknowledged, we don't want to be this kind of invisible group anymore, like we want to have a voice. Um, and I think it was writer Yuji Ichioka uh, was known for, was credited for, for using the term um, and kind of documenting it first. And so it's just interesting because now we use it so commonly and it, I think it's lost a lot of its um, political power per se. Um, and so now it, it just kind of brings a whole new meaning and context to it, right? When you hear about why it was created and when it was first used. And so it was definitely a Asian American was Asian American was definitely intended to be a an act of rebellion, an act of political statement, and so I think that's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, jumping forward a couple years, we've got Kung Fu, the TV series and movies, just plain old Kung Fu, and so you know I don't know what you associate with that. Maybe Asian people, maybe specific Asian people, like I don't know Bruce Lee. Um, but no, this was <laughs> David Carradine, um, affectionately also known as Bill of the Kill Bill movies. Um, yeah, old white dude, um, starring in these 
films and TV series about kung fu. And, you know, I my favorite podcast, the Bechtel cast, did a review of Kill Bill. And, um, you know, they focus on the portrayal of women specifically in films. And the funniest thing is they talk about how much of a trope it is, you know, or, or how disappointing, right, it is for a female character to be this badass Um, right, Uma Thurman, her character, you know, is fighting all these people and, you know, trying to get vengeance and all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's about motherhood and about a mom trying to get her kid back, and while that's kind of sweet, I guess, it's not, um, it kind of takes away from the strength of the plot or the complexity because it's like, why does everything have to be about being a mom, you know, why couldn't she just be a badass female character out for vengeance? And maybe the vengeance is that David Carradine was taking up all these, taking up all these roles, doing kung fu um, from actually rightful um, actors, Asian actors who could be in these roles. And so that's why she killed him. That's my rewrite of Kill Bill. Um, And I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh because David Carradine's dead. But Anyway, I'm going <laughs> to... It's a joke. I made it. It's out there. Anyway, uh, there was also a rumor. Uh, speaking of Bruce Lee, there's a rumor. I think it was his his wife um, in, in one of her books about his life actually said that, you know, Bruce Lee actually came up with these ideas for the show and the movies or, what you know, whatever it was, the original concept, and it was stolen by Warner Brothers. Um, the creator of these... Um, Ed Spielman denies that vehemently, but who knows? I I am inclined to believe that's totally true. Um, And and Bruce Lee was rumored to be up for the role in the Kung Fu franchise, but obviously did not get it. It didn't turn out that way. And then on to some nerd culture stuff. 1986 brings us aliens. Um, You know, aliens, not alien. (laughs) And uh, the, the sequel to Alien. And there's the character Vasquez, who's... I don't know. I I, I, want, I want to call her like Agent Vasquez, but she's not a. She's like a soldier or a you know part of that team that kind of gets called into uh, this you know journey to go um, check out the planet ship thing. What I, I don't know. It's been a long time. Anyway, Vasquez was meant to be a um, Latina character. She was not played by a Latina character, but instead, Jeanette Goldstein, uh, who was, again, brownface, for lack of a better term, um, they, yeah, put her in makeup that made her skin appear darker, so that she would look kind of brown, even though she was not. So, again, these are, not all of these are, are strictly Asian cases, but I think it's important to show how all, um, minority groups are kind of being underrepresented and misrepresented and, erased completely in some cases. Um, So moving into the 2000s, um, we get a new type of kind of interesting or problematic casting choice when Memoirs of a Geisha comes out. So Memoirs of a Geisha was uh, made abroad and was intended for international release. This was um, a pretty successful film about, obviously, the Geisha culture, Um, meaning that it takes place in Japan and is set, um, (laughs) I think almost the whole thing is in Japan. I can't remember if they go to 
the United States or anything, but mostly in Japan, problematic because almost all of the cast is actually Chinese. And so if you remember, this is Zhang Ziyi of, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. We had Gong Li, own Michelle Yeoh. Um, and so good movie, but also why not get Japanese actors to play these characters? Um, granted, I know some of, you know, the, the actors cast in this film were, were pretty well known. Um, but again, just a different kind of weird, a different flavor, if you will, of kind of misrepresenting um, in casting choices. So there's that. Another really interesting one that I feel like I should point out is 2007, A Mighty Heart comes out. Um, Angelina Jolie plays Marianne Pearl, who is a real woman. <laughs> so again, like these are the ones that I think infuriate me the most when it's kind of like a historical figure. Um, or based on a true story of a particular person. And Angelina, for some reason, thought that she could play a black woman um, in this movie and just curl her hair a little bit and everything would be cool. Um, but no, it's not cool. I don't know what she was thinking. Anyway, the following year, in 2008, we've got 21. Uh, that movie uh, with Kevin Spacey and the MIT Blackjack team that learns how to kind of game the system and using math, <laughs> their math powers, and, um, you know, it's based, what, like, probability and everything that, you know, they can they can win millions and millions of dollars. Uh, this is also based on a true story, and then the surprising thing is that these, the team was actually the lead, um, was actually a guy named Jeff Ma, who was Asian, and his team was also predominantly Asian, and so... Obviously, if you've seen the movie, that's not the case in the way the casting turned out. They actually changed the character's name. I can't remember. He was like Ben or something. Um, and so they completely whitewash and erase that from the part of the story where it's just a predominantly white cast. And they do include one Asian dude, if I remember the movie correctly, who's there, again, as like a secondary character and a sidekick and is there for you know, comic relief. Um, anyway, yeah, just awful, terrible. I didn't even know that one until after I saw the movie, um, until much, much later. So that one was kind of crazy and caught me by surprise. And the following year, 2009, Dragon Ball Evolution <laughs> takes the world by storm. No, it's a huge flop, um, for many reasons, but only one of, um, just one small piece is Justin Chatwin white guy who was cast to play Goku. Um, and so 2010, again, this is just one right after the other here. 2010, we had The Last Airbender come out. Noah Ringer um, is cast as the kid Aang. Um, also, did not do well at all. He won the Razzie for, one of, for the worst movie of 2010, so obviously they had more than casting problems going on there, but again, a white kid playing, you know, and these, you know, Dragon Ball and Airbender, Last Airbender, based on anime, on manga, things like that. And so people expect these characters to be Asian. Um, and for whatever reason, the people in power, the people making decisions do not follow those expectations and believe that for some reason that, you know, they just can't cast Asian people. And then... 
a couple years later, we get a, oh, we get a couple years of a reprieve, and then 2013 comes around, and we've got Star Trek Into Darkness, and Benedict Cumberbatch is cast as Khan, uh, the villain in the film, and so if people following, um, you know, the Star Trek franchise know that Khan is supposed to be Indian, Benedict Cumberbatch, as we know, is not, and so... Again, that movie actually did really well. I think it's the highest performing of all the Star Trek films, um, but did get called out as being problematic for that casting choice. Um, and then, you know, another note, this is also the same year that Johnny Depp decides that it's a good idea to play Tonto in The Lone Ranger. So I guess coming off of his success in Pirates of the Caribbean, decides that throwing on some makeup and some crazy accessories and headwear that he can be a Native American character. So, um, 2014, again, we have another manga-based movie, Edge of Tomorrow, um, is based on the manga All You Need Is Kill, and that was played by the lovely Tom Cruise, who also is not Asian. So that's another case where the whole story was kind of just whitewashed and remade, Um, in a way that was meant to appeal to American audiences, even though people familiar with that story uh, would probably expect them to be Asian. And then you had the fun year where lots of these are now the memorable ones that we're coming into. 2015, uh, the movie Aloha, where Emma Stone is supposed to play a part Asian character. And obviously Emma Stone, if you've seen her, I don't know, <laughs> maybe you know what she looks like and you would know that she is not Asian at all. And and that's the sad thing. She's one of those actresses I want to like her. I kind of like her. She's my, She might be one of my problematic favorites um, at this point in time, if that's um, something, if that's a thing. Um... 2015 is also the same year we get The Martian. And this one, again, this one's a little less obvious because uh, people probably wouldn't notice it unless they had read the book. So in The Martian, starring Matt Damon, um, it was actually not Matt Damon this time who was the offender. Um, It's the actor Mackenzie Davis who plays Mindy Park, um, and she's a NASA engineer in this case. And from the books, we know that she's supposed to be Korean-American, and in fact she is played by a blonde white girl. And so this is a case where, yeah, a little name, like a a casting choice, not acknowledging kind of the book lore and deciding that, you know, a white actor would be better or more profitable than an Asian one. And again, it's one of those things where it's like typically going on the stereotypes, it's like, couldn't an Asian actor be one of these side characters and couldn't they be an engineer? But no. We don't even get that in this case, so we get essentially erased. Um, Then the year after that, 2016, we get into kind of the Doctor Strange case of Tilda Swinton being the Ancient One. And this one is kind of, it's not complicated, it's just annoying. So Scott Derrickson tried to defend it as this choice of, like, well, I didn't want it to be a stereotype of an old Asian dude. Um, so I tried to write it, and now I don't, I'm not quoting him directly, but it's, it's my version, my summary of what he has said. 
Um, but when I started to write it as an Asian woman, it sounded too dragon lady. And that, that was actually dark. He said too dragon lady. Um, and so no, instead of like, I don't know, hiring other writers and consulting actual Asian people, he just decided that it, oh, that's too hard to write an Asian woman character. So I'm going to write a white woman character because that's easier. So so that I don't get into stereotype territory. <laughs> and so, again, this is a case where just bad decisions all around, like knowing that you can't even write this without being typical, you know, stereotypical and acknowledge, you know, your own bias and, and actively seek those people out of the that are part of the community that you don't know well and get facts, get real content, get real perspectives um, and do the work then, you know, like that's the thing that's so infuriating is that like, he just kind of gave up on the prospect of making it an Asian woman, um, just because it was too hard. And so that's just kind of shitty. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I, you know, that's dumb. I think it's just, it's made even worse when the director, the people behind these decisions try to make up some what they think is a reasonable excuse for some of the decisions they made. So rather than owning up to just bad decision-making or acknowledging your bias that, you know, they have to try to cover their ass, and that's what's what pisses me off. Um, 2016, I believe, is the same year that The Great Wall also came out, which is another sort of complicated one. It was was actually you know, being driven and directed by, by an Asian director, Zhang Yimou, and he's gone on record since and said he wanted a white actor to play the role in this film, so we did have Matt Damon um, play the lead in The Great Wall, <laughs> and again, I, I don't know, it's like, this one's a weird one because it wasn't based on anything that was supposed to be historically accurate, in fact, it was kind of a fantasy film, that involved dragons and beasts or something, and I don't know, Matt Damon fighting creatures. And so it, it wasn't meant to be historic, so I'm not giving it a complete pass because I'm still uh, pretty, I'm, I still believe that like when you watch a movie or think of a movie called The Great Wall that is in fact about the Great Wall of China, that like you expect Chinese people to be prominent in this film, <laughs> and they're not. So... I think also this is one of the films where Constance Wu came out pretty publicly uh, against it and, and voiced her concerns too. So, it, you know, it's up to I'm not going to tell you what to think about it. I'm just sharing the information. I'll tell you what I think about, but you totally don't have to agree with me. So there's that. 2017 brings us almost up to present day, um, but obviously this is kind of the most, um, the more the fresh um cases on her mind was Ghost in the Shell, and so again, another kind of anime-based story with a lead who is Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> and so, not only is it super annoying that Scarlett Johansson is supposed to play this Japanese character, um, but there were rumors even that there were attempts or someone somewhere thought it was a good idea that, oh, we can make the actors look more Asian with CGI, and so now we get into this territory of, like, even more screwed up yellow face, where it's like, oh, now we just brought yellow face into the 
into the technology age and we're just going to make it super high tech and still really racist and really messed up. So I don't know what to do with that, but (laughs) it's garbage. And also that movie didn't do very well. So bringing us to present day, I wanted to jump into and talk about some current projects that are in the works. (laughs) And so... Ah, here we go. Um, Rick and Morty writer Jessica Gao, um, Asian American woman, actually very, uh, well known for her episode. One of her episodes was the Pickle Rick episode, and so fans of Rick and Morty will know this is super iconic, um, has, you know, branded many a t-shirt and memes and merchandise (laughs) around, um, and that actually won an Emmy. So Jessica Gao is an Emmy winner uh, for that episode. Um, but she has a new project in the works, which I want to be ve- I want to be happy for her. Here's the thing. It's a show that she pitched to ABC. It has been greenlit. Um, but she pitched it as like as quote unquote, lazy rich Asians. Um, and it will be a story about a Chinese American woman who, you know, kind of inadvertently becomes the matriarch of her family because her grandma dies and happens to leave her and her alone the ginormous inheritance from their family. So, while, again, here's the, like, every, it's like the opposite of a silver lining, what is that? Like, every seemingly good thing comes with a but, and so this is the but. I'm so glad Crazy Rich Asians has opened the door for Asian-led films and TV, you know, TV projects. Um, The but is that for some reason it's, I don't want it to become, or I hope that it doesn't become like, let's open the door only for this particular type of story of rich Asian people, of rich Chinese people. Like, where are the stories about poor Asians, about... Filipinos and Vietnamese people and uh, Malaysian, I don't, you know, like, there's just so many other types of Asian people that are run different kind, you know, run the gamut of different um, socioeconomic status, um, where the Asian LGBTQ characters and stories, like, this is the problem that lots of people were trying to call out with Crazy Rich Asians, and, and it, I wasn't ignoring it, I just you know, I chose to be more positive about it, but I do know, see the danger in that being the story that gets, you know, gets Asians, um, into Hollywood as marketable, as, um, desirable, that, like, this is the only, like, that's the problem, that's when we run into problems, is, like, this is the only type of story we can tell about Asian people, um, okay, there, rant on that part, done, Other than that, I am happy for you, Jessica Gao. I hope the show does well. I will probably still watch it, (laughs) um, if I'm being honest, just to support the community, but I would love to see more stories. And so, I I mean, this brings up the larger question. Okay, my rant apparently isn't done. It just brings up the larger question of, like, it's not just people not hiring or putting Asian actors in roles. It's we need more Asian, you know, people and minorities creating these stories, like writing TV pilots, uh, writing movies and selling scripts. Um, We need more 
minorities and people of color in casting roles, like casting directors, in producer roles, in directing roles, so that we can be more influential in the industry. We can be the ones telling our own stories and in charge of the direction and approach that we take. Like, so again, like there's still a lot of work to be done. Like while we've had some great success this last month, um, people are even calling it, you know, it's hashtag Asian August. And so on the writing, the success of not only crazy rich Asians, but searching John Cho's movie has done extremely well lately. And um, to all the boys I loved before being a huge success on Netflix. So while we're in this high and people are now scrambling for for Asian led stories like this is really cool but we have to be more thoughtful and more critical of the kinds of stories that are being told um that's 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 what it is that's what I think (laughs) and so um and speaking of to all the boys I loved before um and just again to point out how we are not kind of like in any sort of like victorious state of equality we (laughs) Um, to all the boys I loved before, there was only one production company who was willing to cast an Asian lead um, as Laura Jean. So, again, while the movie made it to screen, while they got Lana Condor um, to play Laura Jean, it was not without its own challenges. And I'm sure Jenny Han had a heck of a time trying to sell this story to production companies or agencies or whatever, what have you. Um with an Asian, a female Asian lead in this role. So it got done, which is great, and it's awesome. And obviously now um, those who probably who denied it are probably kicking themselves. Uh, but it's just one of those things that shows how much more work there is need to be done, that needs to be done, and how much more impactful we can be if, if there are more Asians and more minorities and people of color in these other roles of, like, decision-making. And not that I'm saying that's a super easy thing to do, Um, but it's just that, you know, we need to do what we can to influence, um, the stories that are being told about us. Um, the other thing that I I wanted to say about Lana Condor is that I found out some really cool information (laughs) about her that I wanted to share, um, that she's actually a transracial adoptee, and I am super excited because I know very few other transracial adoptees and actually and I she might be the only actress that I know of or actor that I know of that's a transracial adoptee so um I just it makes me love her even more so she you know if you don't know or I haven't listened to the other episodes I'm also I'm Filipino my family's not I was adopted and so that's kind of what transracial adoptee means is when you um you have one ethnic makeup and your family is is not of that makeup so (laughs) that was a weird way to say that but whatever Lana Condor is um Vietnamese she was born in Vietnam and adopted by white parents she also actually has a brother who's Vietnamese um they aren't biologically related but they were both adopted from Vietnam Um, And so the weird thing is that when I read about this, I think it was an interview in Elle, um, Elle magazine, she refers to it as being biracial. (laughs) And I'm so sorry. While I love you, Lana Condor, I want to call you out a little bit because I don't think biracial is a good term to be, like, it's just not the way that I would explain it. Um, Yeah, there might be some 
parallel experiences there. Like, again, I don't want to speak for the biracial community, but there's, there's a tie-in with being a transracial adoptee and being biracial in that at the core, there's often a question of whether or not you really are what you say you are. Like, for me, it was always like, well, are you full Filipino, really? Or how can you be Filipino if you don't speak Tagalog? Or how can you be Filipino if you haven't eat, eaten Filipino food? Okay, note I've eaten plenty of Filipino food now at this point, but yeah, this was back in my teenage years where I only had one or two friends that, and I hadn't had, but hadn't been exposed to, to all the amazing Filipino food that's out there. But again, um, so I think that what I'm trying to say is that the, the common thread is this like people are always gonna are always questioning your identity and your the validity of it like like and this weird notion that you will never be enough um to call yourself what you are um but I think that's where it ends like again racial issues and and perceptions often are also based on how you look and so the difference there is that biracial people often appear to be one or the other or you know or appear mixed as opposed to somebody who appears fully Vietnamese or appears fully Filipino and and then as a transracial adoptee it's often this like you have to resolve this assumption or expectation that people have of you that that you look Filipino but oh you don't speak Tagalog or you look Filipino but you uh forgot to take your shoes off when you came into my house. Like, <laughs> I didn't learn a lot of these things until I was in high school um, and had friends that were Asian, and, and basically they taught me all those seemingly small things, but when you don't do them or don't know the culture or these, you know, traditions and, and certain things that make up that culture, uh, people notice and decide to comment about it and so it is one of those things that makes it a really interesting experience and so while I totally relate to Lana I don't and would not use biracial as the way to describe that so and I'm sure and again like intention aside I'm sure she didn't mean to um appropriate the term from from actual biracial people I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. I'm, I'm apologizing for her, which I should not be, but I really like her. She's super cute. Um, and I want to be an apologist for her. Anyway, it's not the same at all. Call it what it is. You're a transracial adoptee. Um, other people who have mixed, you know, uh, ethnic makeups, those are people who are biracial. And, you know, anyway. Um, I should also say didn't think I mentioned this in the news, but Lana Condor, the actress, will also be appearing in Alita Battle Angel, that movie coming out from, from James Cameron, which also is problematic in its own ways because Alita, again, was a manga-based um, narrative, and so the main character is played by a Latina actress who's, you know, kind of augmented through CGI to be more, to look like a cyborg, right, which she is in the, in the movie, but, um, the weirdness is that, you know, the expectation is this character would have been Asian, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know, all of that aside, I'm not super interested in seeing Alita, only because in the previews, the character, it's just the weird uncanny valley thing. Like, okay, she's an actual person, but she was all, like, her eyes are made to be extra large. 
um, and it's very CGI heavy, and I just, it's very Uncanny Valley to me, and, like, there's something that just reps me the wrong way, um, and Uncanny Valley, if you don't know, is that, that sensation or that feeling that, like, the more familiar, um, or human-like something looks, like, it almost makes it more uncomfortable or more, like, you identify with it less. <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's kind of the same effect as, as uh, Polar Express had when the characters look, like, weirdly human, um, and it's, like, unsettling. <laughs> so that's the effect that Alita has on me, so I don't know that I will be seeing it, at least not in the theaters. I don't know. We'll see. Um, anyway, moving on. Um, the other last kind of final point... Or one of the last things I want to talk about was The Rock um, getting cast as King Kamehameha. So, you know, historically now, as we've seen in the timeline, this is not unusual for somebody not of that culture or community to play a prominent historical figure. Um, and while Rock is part Polynesian, The Rock is part Polynesian, um, his announcement of taking this role got a lot of mixed reactions because... Uh, he's not, in fact, native Hawaiian. And so, you know, The Rock, I think, went on record at some point to say how excited he was to play this character and that he's always wanted to since he was young. And, and granted, he did live in Hawaii, so that's kind of why he has that connection. Um, but at the same time, this is where the conversation, like, needs to really go deeper. Like, how accurate does representation need to be are these like tiers or layers of unethical casting is it always problematic and where do we draw the line you know I, I you don't have to agree with me like you can draw your own line in the sand where it matters and where it doesn't matter um you know that's the same problems that some people had with crazy rich Asians that not all these actors were truly you know Singaporean um and and even in some conversations about Moana before that like it was vaguely Polynesian and not one specific um island culture or you know they didn't land on anyone it was kind of a, a combination of all the different islands and island nations um that they pulled from for inspiration so uh again you can think what you want about it but it's something to think about you know it's like where do we draw these lines like for me I think because it is such a prominent like historical figure King Kamehameha is the you know founder father of Hawaii as we know it and obviously like very important to to people to native Hawaiians and so I don't blame them for wanting a native Hawaiian uh, actor to play that role um and so again like now at this point we know it's not impossible for for a lesser known actor to you know, take a movie to, to success, um, that it doesn't have to be that you need The Rock to make this movie successful, so, you know, again, I don't know, this is, the directors behind it aren't giving me much confidence, it's Robert Zemeckis, and, and Randall Wallace is involved, he wrote, uh, Braveheart, I don't know, so, we'll, we'll see what happens, I mean, you can think what you want, there, I think some people, you know, it's, and again, it's mixed, so not everybody totally hates it, you know, and, and I might actually go see it, but it's just, it's worth having that conversation. It's worth bringing up the question of did they even ask or look for Native Hawaiian actors to play that. So just putting that out there. And then lastly, I wanted to bring up a final 
disappointing story. So as we know, Mulan is in production. So this isn't about Mulan, just a side note. Mulan's in production, the live-action remake. Um, right up before this, we had Aladdin get greenlit as another remake as well. And you had, you know, big actors. You've got Will Smith, who's playing the genie. Um, but the most disappointing thing about it is that it came out recently that, um, and while they have, you know, predominantly Middle Eastern main cast, um, there were many, many white extras used in the film, and somebody thought it was a good idea to, um, uh, use makeup to make them look more brown and appear more Middle Eastern, quote-unquote. So, uh, again, while historically now we know that's not something unusual, it's like, this is freaking 2018, and somebody not only had the idea, but multiple people involved greenlit this idea to put makeup on the white actors um, to make them appear more brown. And so, obviously, this is something that was never going to work. They, you know, whoever, somebody thankfully saw this and realized how awful it was, and now they're doing reshoots um, or going back and kind of editing the footage in some way, I guess. And they're doing their best to fix it. So I think the project might be delayed a little bit. But anyway, it's just a sad, stupid thing that is like, is this still happening? So again, you can decide for yourself like how far we've come since the 1915, 1920s um, and decide whether or not we've gotten any better at at representing Asians um, particularly. So, you know... And there you have it. That's the episode for today. Those were kind of all the things I wanted to cover at this point. Um, again, I'm still kind of figuring out a cadence here. We'll, we'll see. I am, you know, planning. I have a list of, of topics and things I want to cover. So it's not that I don't have the plans to do it. It's just finding the time and the energy and, you know, all of the, that stuff, to you know, outside of work and life and everything else to record on a regular basis. Um, and then I also want to start lining up guests and, and everything too. And so that's a whole, whole other issue with scheduling and trying to connect with people. And, you know, for the most part, I'd love to get them in person, but still also trying to figure out all the technical possibilities of, of getting folks on the phone, um, and do remote interviews if they're, you know, not local. So that's what's coming. I hope you come back (laughs) and stick with me. Um, I appreciate that you were here and listening, and I will talk to you later. Bye.